Hey everybody, welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I'm really excited about this conversation with Liz Titchener, the author and Episcopal priest of The Night Lake. If you haven't read this book, you should pick it up. So many people in my life all at the same time told me there's this book you need to read. So I'm telling you, there's this book you need to read. Liz's mom was a long-term alcoholic and committed suicide. And Liz also outlines in the story the untenable loss of her 40-day-year-old baby and how she and her family cope with that loss and continue to live and thrive. There's so many bits and pieces. Let's just dig right in. This is Grief is My Side Hustle. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I'm Megan Reardon-Yarvis, your host, and I'm here with Liz Titchener. She wrote a beautiful book called The Night Lake, and I reached out to her to see if she would give us a little bit of her time to talk about her book and her um, sense of loss, and I'm going to read you just her bio so that you know who she is. Liz has put down roots in the Bay Area, but is originally from New Hampshire, and the Midwest. An Episcopal priest, she serves as rector at the Episcopal Church of the Resurrection, Pleasant Hill, California. Titchener and her husband, Jesse, are raising two young children and continuing to explore the adventure of living, parenting, and serving in their community. Thank you so much for being here. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I I, just a little bit off air. We were doing our introductions to each other and and realizing we have some people in common. I read your book a while ago now, probably six months, and then reread it for this interview. And I'm really grateful to have you here. I am excited for people to hear your perspective and learning, both not only as someone who's had primary, completely traumatic and untenable loss, but Mm -hmm. also that you identify as a member of a religious community Mm -hmm. and, and maybe threading some of those things together for us. So go ahead and just um, assume that not everyone has read your book, (laughs) although obviously everyone will have after this. Uh, Oh, you're kind. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really glad to be with you and and with whoever it is joining us elsewhere right now. My book is, it it chronicles my experience of these two major losses. So first, my mom died by suicide. She'd struggled with alcoholism for a long time. And then about not quite a year and a half later, our second child, a son, died as an infant. He was 40 days old, and it was just totally unexpected. He'd been this huge, healthy baby, and Suddenly he was sick briefly and the doctor said he was fine and then he was not breathing. We had a daughter already. She was two and a little bit when he died. And in between these two deaths, I was ordained as an Episcopal priest. I was 27. It's all been woven together in this sort of wild jumble, this finishing school and setting out to this vocation that I had been headed towards for uh, a good long while, and all of a sudden being thrust into this completely new territory of devastating loss. And, and so it felt in a lot of ways like I was learning to be a parent, and I was learning to be a priest, and I was also learning how to be a person deep in grief all at the same time. Yeah. And so the book, The Night Lake, is, is that story over, over a number of years and, and moving through, and not beyond grief, certainly, but coming to a place where I feel like, you know, there, there are still surprises, but I, I have a sense of how to live and live well with it at mm-hmm. this point. 
Mm. I mean, it's so many threads, but the book is called The Night Lake. And in the Mm -hmm. very, I think it's the very last chapter of the book, there's a chapter called The Night Lake. Mm -hmm. But maybe tell us a little bit about the relationship of the setting and the the lake in the- Yeah, in your story. Yeah, so we, my husband and my daughter and and then my son and I were living on the shore of Lake Tahoe. We'd moved up from the Bay Area in California. After I finished seminary, I'd begun my first call there. And we were were living at this summer, it was like a summer camp that was then a retreat uh, conference center during the rest of the year. And And it's right on the edge of the water. It's, I don't know, maybe eight acres along the shore, the eastern shore there in Nevada. In some ways, it's a, a pretty isolated place. It's 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 not that far from South Lake Tahoe, but it's it's a drive, and yeah. and it's off, or you know, more or less in the wilderness. There, I, I have lived close to water at various points. I, I lived in sight of water in Berkeley for many years, but but there's this way in which we were just right on the edge of this expanse of lake, and you could see the mountains on the other side, but. They're so, it's a huge lake. They're so far away. Yeah. And, and so, so much of my living and then my grieving and my grappling and my not knowing what way was up at all, it all happened right along the contours of that shoreline in a way that accompanied me, I think, in a way that, I mean, I had so many people coming alongside me, but the, just the sheer magnitude of the lake, it, it came to exist as its own character yeah, in yeah. my story, I think. And, and in a way that helped me learn how I could actually, my life could actually contain all of this, that it could contain the, it could contain the horror and the just absolute beauty of it. Yeah. And they weren't mutually exclusive. They were actually completely woven together. And, and the lake felt like, one of the pieces that taught me that I don't, holding it all. I don't specifically remember this, if this is the truth, but is it, <laughs> is it the lake that you run near? Mm-hmm. Tell the, tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, it's pretty early in your loss that you find running almost like as a regulation tool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wasn't a runner. I had run years or my, my favorite professor in college who became a, a close friend was a runner and taught me how to run. I ran, I trained for my first half marathon with her when I was whatever, 22. And then life got busy and I was traveling and it just, it didn't happen anymore. And then I had a baby and running with a baby. It just, yeah. <laughs> no. <nah. laughs> and in the very, very early days after my son Fritz died, I had, well, so my body if I, I, I was just pumping with, I could feel the, the adrenaline, cortisol, whatever, that whole cocktail of shock chemicals yeah. just everywhere in my body for, for days and days and days. And, and my mind too was just a really complicated, desperate place to be. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to think. I didn't feel like I could sit still. Yeah. Because all I could see when I stopped moving, you know, when I stopped tending to my two-year-old daughter or top, stopped tending to all, I mean, there's so much that you have to do practically after someone dies that if I, if I stopped and sat still, 
all of the, the images of this dead son would, would flood me. And I just, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't sit with it. And so I, I don't even know honestly where the idea came from, but I, I found these, you know, these tennis shoes in my closet and put them on and just went out. And so the lake where we were living, we were at, I think it's 6,200 feet of elevation. It's pretty high. Wow. Yeah. Enough that, you know, like I was acclimated, but for running yeah. and it's really yeah. steep hills, I, I, I couldn't breathe. But I, I started, so I think it was 10 days after he died, I ran and then I ran the next day and the next day and the next day. It felt like I, if I was in movement, no matter, I mean, and I, this was very slow, like barely qualified as running only in, in the sense that one foot was off the ground right. at a given time, did it qualify as running? It felt like I could begin to approach the ideas and the images that flooded me mm -hmm. and the, the memory and the fear and, and the what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to my family and my marriage and my yeah. everything. I felt like I could begin to look at that if I was in motion, if I was running. I come into the field of grief and loss having like a lot of academic background in grief and loss, right? So all the mm -hmm. like theory behind the stuff. Yeah. What's always interesting to me talking to people and I talk to people all day about grief and loss is this innate knowing. Mm -hmm. They'll say it just like you. Like, I don't know why it occurred to me, but I, you know, I just like pulled the cover off the piano or mm -hmm. I remembered I had paints under my bed that used to be my son's from, you know, school. And there will be a way of expressing energy, extra energy, new energy, an expression that isn't necessarily something that was otherwise part of your life, like running, that's needed. Like this wisdom in your system that's like, we got to do this some way. And obviously not for everybody you know, there are people. It's going to be a different thing for yeah, each person. Yeah, well, right? and it's well, not and great. It's not always good for you. You know, there are ways right. in which that energy can come out. And I talk to people who are like, oh yeah, you know, I did really destructive things. But it is interesting to me that our system gives us, you know, you don't need to be told there is neuroscience mm -hmm. about why mm -hmm. your body is re better regulated when you're running. It has to do with crossing the meridian and bilateral mm -hmm. stimulation and all this stuff. But whether you know that or not, your body knew to right. run. Well, and, and, and yeah, I don't think I knew any of that, but I knew that I, I think I was holding my breath yeah. in those early days in, in just being in complete shock. And it was as if my body, I mean, I think my body was doing exactly what it needed to do, but, but it was almost like I'd, I'd forgotten on some really basic level of, of how to live as a human yeah. being breathe. in that shock. I couldn't, I didn't know how to breathe anymore. Yeah. Seeing my son not breathing had stolen my ability to breathe. But when you're running at, you know, above 6,000 feet of elevation on hills, you, you have no choice but to right. breathe. You better breathe. You breathe a lot. And, and that was such a welcome space and practice. Yeah, exactly. That, that word of practice. And, mm -hmm. and one of the things that you said to me is you don't really run anymore because of a foot injury. Yeah. Yeah. Not right now. Well, and so that's the other thing is that I think it evolves and it can be so tempting to, to cling to these things that have worked at one point. Yeah. Um, and maybe they stop working for any number of reasons, or maybe they become inaccessible because we move or the shape of our lives changes, or in my case, 
I've been wrestling these uh, these foot injuries for years yeah. and I'm finally I'm coming out of it and it's really exciting but for for the last quite a while I've been I've been walking I've been hiking I've been getting out on the tribe we've got a, a pandemic puppy who needs a lot of exercise and so <laughs> they'll get she, you Oh yeah. So she gets me up early each morning before the rest of the house is up and we get out and, and get out on the trails and I miss running and I'm, I'm still reaching for it and working my way back. I I get like maybe 200 yards in on a hike and it feels amazing. And what I'm, what I've found is that the, the practice itself is malleable. There are ways to, to find it and to hook it in in other places and other forms. And yeah, I miss the all out physical oh, experience, yeah. that pounding, that exhaustion yeah. that you're just completely used up at the end was such a good thing for me. And I'm also finding, you know, there are things that I see because I'm walking slowly and quietly and I'm learning how to how to stand still while she sniffs, you know, literally every Everything. blade of grass. <laughs> and that stillness, that that's a practice also yeah. that I need, that slowing down that, you know, I mean, the, the, I think there's a shadow side of the running. I wanted to just pound and pound yeah. and pound and always go faster and harder. And that was useful in some ways and also risky in some yeah. way. I mean, I don't think that is why I'm injured. It's related to other stuff, but that was, it, it was what I needed for a season and it wasn't going to be sustainable as a, a lifelong practice either. And yeah. so continuing to ask the question of, of what is the practice now? What, yeah. what will carry me forward in, in this particular season of where I am? In the, in your book, one of the things, so one of the things that I threaded, I think the reason several people recommended it to me, and I think it's because I I'm vocal about my very tumultuous religious journey across Mm. Catholicism and the Episcopal faith and sort of into not so much of anything anymore. One thing that I noticed and tell me if this doesn't feel true to you, but one thing that I noticed is that the, the last bunch of chapters, religion feels very relevant. And in the early chapters of loss, it feels like the community, the people Mm-hmm. that make up the sort of church life. So it's almost like this arc. It's really mm-hmm. about the people and and those folks and those relationships that sustained you. And then there's a stitching into the larger, let's say, biblical story. Mm-hmm. Does that feel true to you? I'm so intrigued as to what does religion offer in those moments mm-hmm. and what can it not offer? And obviously you're speaking as a person and a priest, but not for everybody. But I am just really curious about that because what I had assumed, the cover says like, this is the story of a priest. I assumed I was going to hear a story of a young mother just praying all the time and losing her religion. (laughs) So it was, it was notable Uh to me that that wasn't, or Uh it was your first go-to. It wasn't expressed that way. It was, it wasn't expressed like you were wailing to God. It sounded like you were calling your people. And they Hmm. showed up as sort of, you know, a manifestation of what we hope church Uh at at its best is. Yes. Yes to all of that. Yes. Um, Yes. (laughs) I I think one of the things that was disorienting, really challenging, I, I don't know, in those early 
like the early time of loss. And I don't even know how I would define what span of time. It almost feels right. irrelevant. Right. Is that I didn't have any words. It, it wasn't that I felt like God was absent, but I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't, I didn't know what the prayer would be if I were to pray. I had, I had no language for any of it, which is a little bit challenging since it was, you know, my job. Right, to talk. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it wasn't that I didn't, didn't believe it or didn't trust it. I was really grateful that I'm in this tradition that we have a lot of it written down. We have yeah. these ancient, ancient prayers that I lead, that I offer. And, you know, I mean, I write sermons, which are certainly, you know, my, my own words. But in terms of my own grappling and reaching, early on, I didn't feel like I had language for what that prayer would be. And so on my own, some of the prayer became my feet on the trail and my breath and trusting that would be its own encounter, its own longing communicated, um, a space where I could receive some sort of strength and support and beauty and grace. And I did, but you're absolutely right that early on my experience of, of faith and of God was in my people who showed up and who trusted and held and prayed and reminded and, and all of that hoped for me, for us on our behalf when, when I wasn't going to be able to do that. I, I really think that so much of the beauty of doing this in community is that we take turns, that none of us are able, I don't think, truly able to do it all on our own all the time, that we, we have to yeah. carry each other. And I think being able to lean on these people and see their love and see their trust in, in carrying us eventually brought me to a place where I, I could have language for it again. I could have a sense of what I might say or pray or yell or sing or whatever at God that early on I couldn't. So then as time went on, I was able to find more more grounding or more understanding in how my story wove together with all these sacred stories of ours that we use to to make sense and find find our way together. But early right. on that that wasn't what <laughs> that, that was what I needed. Yeah. You write really beautifully in multiple places about this thing that I think happens. Well, I think it happens to every person that's had untenable loss. You write about the like flash of anger. You write about it early on when the, when the chaplain comes or whomever it is like, Ooh, boy, but it's so true. And it's so honest. I felt so grateful Mm. for the way that Mm. you wrote it. And the way that the language that I put around that is that I hate people for a moment. Like I literally mm-hmm. hate them and I'm able to love people really fast too. But there's a, there's a moment where I, when someone says something that comforts them, but doesn't comfort me, I despise yeah. them just like absolutely mm-hmm. despise them. And there are little flashes of it when you're pregnant with Sam and you're waiting for Sam. One of the midwives also says something like mm. completely insane. Uh-huh. Oh, he's, you know, he's Fritz and he's re- Fritz returning. Yeah, like, yeah, lady, like, no, just, no, just keep your no. mouth shut. Like, just keep yeah. your mouth shut. 
But I really appreciate, I guess, also hearing from someone who is religious, right? There's that aspect. I think people come in and they're like, well, you're a therapist. So you know, everything I'm a therapist. I don't know anything. I don't know your knowing. I'm just here to sort of help you believe that you can find it. I found something really comforting, even in your labor story with Sam, you're talking about all your swear words and all those things. Like there's something really real about all of Mm. that and and gritty and true. And, Mm. and there's a scene that I just wanted to, to talk to you about for a moment about when you go back to the lake and I don't, I don't remember which return it is, Mm -hmm. but I think it's Sam who's asking you a lot about Fritz and you're explaining where his ashes are and your husband gets it wrong. Mm -hmm. What I notice in the story is that it's like, it's your narrative and your experience. Mm -hmm. And what I know about child loss is that it's a collective experience. And one of the things that you demonstrate in the, in the early chapters is that your whole community is holding this loss with you, which has some pros and cons, right? Mm -hmm. Some of it is there's no privacy. And another is you don't have to do it alone. I think you tell a really brutal and important truth. Mm. There's this moment where I think the words that you use are, you know, you knew you were alone in it, but until he, until Jesse sort of gets it, like he thinks- it's only like a little bit off, you know, it was like a foot off or something, but like, I know, cause there's not a, there's not a marker there. There's not a, yeah. Right. And he thinks some of them, I think are scattered at the lake and you're like, no, they're not scattered at the lake. Right. And it's so, (laughs) but it's like this other little lake nearby. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I talk about to grievers a lot is it really doesn't matter where your spiritual center is and how you describe how you organize that with which category of religion or none. We really do do this alone because the relationship is me and what I've lost Mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you have to be lonely in it. You can be surrounded mm-hmm. by these extraordinary people to some degree, like running a race, you're running it. They can be mm-hmm. there to support you, but it's you that has to. Yeah. It's your work to do. It's our, yeah. our work on our, and some of it is incredibly collaborative and mutual and, and some of it is ours to carry. Yeah. yeah. And there's, somewhere in that time frame, I think you also have this experience running and essentially have like a vision. And I think mm-hmm. it's one of a couple. So yeah. I wondered if you'd talk about that a little bit, what, what do you know about that? How, how in your understanding of the world, how do you understand that and how do you hold it and how do you use it as a, mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. supportive tool? Yeah. Well, it was certainly really surprising to me you know we have across the christian christian tradition there there are lots of stories of mystics or you know people who come close to god in in particular ways and share sometimes really wild stories of these encounters and by and large we hear those come across as old stories from some other time and some other place from someone yeah. who maybe would be diagnosed with something else, I don't right. know. Right. And it's not something that, that we talk a whole lot about, at least in, in the Episcopal Church, <laughs> there's not a lot of conversation no. about that. Yeah. Because I think, you know, people want to be sort of 
respectable. Serious. <laughs> Serious, yeah. not, um, you not know, hallucinating. Or, exactly. Yeah, mostly the not hallucinating piece. I think that in particular, my son's death, it just cracked me wide open to this sense that things were so much more mysterious and complicated and connected and permeable and and really really filled with grace than i had ever yeah perceived and i think that because so much of the most basic things that i had taken for granted as reliable i mean i think for example of i never realized how often this gets kicked around until after Fritz died, but people say all the time as a matter of encouragement or whatever, like as, as long as you just, just keep them alive. That's your only job, you know, meaning if your kid is not bathed in a month or if they're only eating cheese puffs, totally fine. They'll grow out of it. Just keep yeah. them alive. Like that's it. And we take that as the baseline. And yeah. for most parents, that's a really comforting thing. Like great. They are literally yeah. caked in mud still beating heart and then that falls apart when your kid dies yeah and so i think that pulled me into a broader way of seeing maybe or perceiving that i was gonna need to find i mean i don't i don't like i don't feel like i went looking for it It no yeah that seems clear I, i happened upon it and and early on, like, I mean, I didn't, I didn't tell any of, I, I, it's still a little bit wild to me that I like, actually put these. Well, I wondered these about that. I wondered because it's not, book. It, the book is not like young Episcopal priest sees a vision of Mary while running. Like it could be, but it's not the center. It's not the heart of the story. So that. It, well, it, it was an experience of, of having the Holy come alongside me in a way that I, I couldn't even begin to explain to you yeah. how that happened or how I knew what I, what I heard and saw. I can't back it up with anything, no. but I know that it carried me and I know that it gave me life and was beautiful. And we like woo woo on this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we're more connected than, and was a gift. And I think that those encounters are, are actually, I mean, this, this can sound so woo woo, right? But it doesn't matter if we can't prove it. It gives us life and helps us to be more, more fully alive than fantastic. I think. Yeah. People who listen to my podcast or read my stuff have heard me talk about this a lot. I just sort of, am like, there's no bigger skeptic out there than me. I have an academic background. I like all the science and the neuroscience mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell you the story. My mom died in 2019. Suddenly she just didn't wake up. And I was about an hour from her house and had the sensation of water breaking in mm. my body. And I knew she died. So when I read your piece, yours is a, was a vision and mine was a sound and a sensation mm. inside my body. And what was interesting for me is that I have no trouble believing that that was the energy that connects us all. Once you want to get more semantic about the words, I get stuck partly Mm. because not all things that connect back to ancient texts 
were good to me or my family. Yeah. So there's a lot of guardedness around. I was raised in a church that was part of the, you know, Boston Globe spotlight stuff and Catholicism just did damage, I would say to my yeah. family. However, my mother was deeply, deeply Catholic. I converted to Episcopal after living in England and going to the Anglican mm-hmm. churches over there and actually still really love the Episcopal church. I just don't feel safe inside churches these days, mm. but I'm pretty churches comfortable. A lot of people. Yeah. So I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that, that there is godlike energy inside of all of us that mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with. And so the idea that something rang my bell to let me know that something terrible had happened and that I then called my husband and was like, my mom died. I heard it in my head. And then Mm. my mom had died. And, and the week previous, my son had been having nightmares that someone he loved was going to die. And he was in Mm. England. Wow. And then my mom did die that I know that that makes people wildly uncomfortable. And I just don't care. Like, I just don't care. Well, and it is, it is really uncomfortable. It's terrible. It's just the I truest mean, to, thing. Like for me, for all of us, I think if we acknowledge that, that there's more going on that we can sometimes be aware of, that we could open ourselves up right. to, that's, it can be beautiful and comforting. It can also be really scary because frankly, it asks something of us. It asks us to yeah. confront something or learn or follow or uh, work on ourselves in ways that frankly sometimes I think we'd rather ignore I would yeah I don't know if I want to hear that (laughs) me either I mean me either and I and also how are we beholden to it I mean probably 10 years ago maybe not quite that long I took a training that's a body-centered training so you talking about running and knowing that that regulated your body a lot of the trainings that I take are helping people get in touch with where mm-hmm. energy flow might be stuck in their body, particularly if they had that traumatic event that put them in freeze, you know, where they just yeah. like couldn't respond. People have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that. That usually generates some element of shame for people that they, you know, mm-hmm. couldn't have protected themselves or done anything different. And So a lot of the work that I do is about helping people sort of move through that energy using their imagination. You can't do anything about what happened, but you can do something about how it feels, right? So how do we move energy through the body so that it feels different? One of the things that I think about with that kind of therapy and that is that you kind of have to know inside your body. I had a master therapist who used to say, do nothing until you feel inspired, until Hmm. when your body is inspired and And I had people in that training point out to me that I was pretty in tune with that inside my body. And since then, I have noticed that I feel hot and cold while Mm. I'm talking to people and that when I'm cold, we're in something that's true. So when I'm talking to clients and they're saying things, I'm like, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. And then all of a sudden it'll be, I'll go really cold. I don't, can't explain to you why I know what I know, but we need to talk about this. Mm. So What I often say to people is like, I don't know, I probably would have been burned at the stake in the 1800s. Like there's probably a senior (laughs) component, but there's also neuroscience behind the, the right brain, the, the perception that people have that is based on sort of your amygdala and your, your brain responses that some people are really good critical thinkers. And some people are much more at having sort of that spiritual perception of things. So I like being right down in all of the mess of it and sort of saying, look, I, you know, 
I really would rather have an explanation about it. And I absolutely know this thing happened in the car. Like those are, and here, and everybody else knows it. Cause I called my husband and was like, I think my mom is dead. There's an element in there that like, there's different layers of how we organize that. And I think organized religion has some, you, you made reference to an ancient text. It has some buoys that we can sort of hang that energy around that feel like they're traditional and through time. There's something about watching that moment where you're running that feels really modern day miraculous. Like the mother of all mothers is coming to just hold you in a space that no one can hold you, that can't be held. Yeah. So, and, and in that, you know, yes, we do this grief work in some ways alone and yet, and yet we're not. Yeah, we're, we're not. And, and, and again, that both can be true. That's both exactly. True. I mean, I say that all the time, which is like it, it, when I say alone, what I mean is as an individual, what, right. what you lose is yours and yours alone. But the whole, the whole concept for, of this podcast for me is being able to put a voice behind the experience of grief. I had a poet this morning who I'm obsessed with, who talked about grief feeling like a friend that's in the other room that you're going to go mm-hmm. have a conversation with many times during your life. Mm-hmm. And I just love that image. I think that like, that is completely gorgeous. We all have mm-hmm. that friend that we need to have that conversation with. Yeah. Yours might be different than mine, but we mm-hmm. all have it. And so it isn't, it's not right. alone. It's also well, totally not alone. And I think part of my hope, I, this is some of what I see you doing, this is some of what what my hope was in writing this book is that, you know, while, while yes, the loss is mine and mine, you know, to work with, learn how to live with, we don't, we have not historically done a very good job of sharing what that's actually like and being honest about what that path. And so you talked earlier about, you know, how I was at various points fairly frank about that rage. And I, and I, I went back and forth and back and forth uh, so many times about whether to include that or not, if I wanted to put that out in the world or not, because it yeah. felt at once so true and so real and also, I don't know, embarrassing. And like I was being this terribly ungrateful person that here are these people who are showing up trying to be kind and support me or send cards or whatever. And, and they can't even get that right. And how, how could I be angry with them for trying to do something kind? Mm-hmm. And, and I really wrestled with if, if I wanted to put that out there and ultimately I decided, you know what, I don't think this is just me, no. but I felt, I felt so, so wrong, I guess, shame to to be angry with people who are trying to be kind to me yeah because the and, intent and, is the yeah, intent, intent is, is there. i think yeah. good i trust that and and i guess what i've come to is is again the sense that all of that can be true yeah that they could that that it's entirely possible that these people were doing you know the chaplain or or people who sent cards that went kind of sideways or whatever it was that they could have been doing their very best to show up and be kind in the very best way they knew how. And it can also be true that the way that they did that, that was, awful. was really painful, that yeah. all of that can be like, can we talk about that? Can we, yeah. can we name that that is a reality of grieving? 
So interesting about that, Liz. And, and, and that gets talked about in the world of grief and loss a lot is, you know, there are a few people out there that have these lists, never say this, don't say that, Mm -hmm. you know, do, do this, don't do that. And I totally well-intended. I'm not here to bash in other people's work. I just Mm -hmm. don't think that works. I think you have Mm -hmm. to show up with the thing that feels true to you and trust that if it's not going to land, you'll, you'll know. So if I were going to teach a class to like college kids, what I would say is here's the, here's the drill. People are going to try people who love you. They're going to try to show up for you and they are going to do an imperfect job. Mm -hmm. And if possible may not be possible, particularly in really fresh grief, let them know they're not doing a great job. Mm-hmm. that their instinct, that they're showing up with blueberry pie and you are allergic to blueberries, let them know because mm-hmm. otherwise what happens, and this is true, mm-hmm. you take the pie and say, thank you. And you feel worse because you feel less seen yeah. and less known. And so it's like, and then you, you get another pie and another, you and get another, another pie and another pie. <laughs> and you pull away yeah. from that friend because, you know, for my mom, what happened with my mom, my mom was a little old lady. She was in her seventies and her little old lady friends were all from church. And so it makes perfect, perfect emotional math that every one of those people would say, oh my gosh, your mom is up there in heaven with your dad looking down on you. And every time they said that in my head, I'd be like, fuck you. That makes you feel better. But I, that makes me feel worse. You get to feel comforted by that. And I can't even beg my system to believe in that. I didn't want to hate them. Mm -hmm. So eventually what I said was, I know you mean that with love. It is not working for me. Do you have anything else about my mom that you can offer? Yeah. Can you tell me a story about her? Exactly. And people, I mean, I think bring her. There were a couple of people that were not, you know, that sort of doubled down and like, no, you have to believe. And I was like, you know, and I am no, I don't. <laughs> also pretty blunt, but I just said, like, I believe you mean to make me feel better, but it feels worse. I'm just going to go the other side of the room. I think that's the like grief education part, right? Mm-hmm. Because we don't talk about it. People feel super awkward about it because they feel super awkward about it. They don't know how to go close. And then when they go close, all they hear when they read grief and loss boards is most of what people do makes me feel bad. The other thing that I think you write beautifully about is that people who are not normally angry are carrying a cannon load of anger. That, Mm. That one of the emotions that shows up to help us manage is anger. That there's desolation and the kind of therapy that I do the way we image that is that anger is your friend. You're like truant, wearing black, smart aleck, kind of rude, always gets in trouble friend that's trying to keep you from being teased by the bullies or the, or the teacher who's not kind to you. So it's this energy that shows up because behind it is all this untenable sadness that no one knows how to manage. So anger would almost rather start fights than leave you alone to deal with this thing that nobody could possibly deal with. When people write about anger, we normalize it. Yeah, no, I, I am not an angry person. I'm happy all the time, except when my mom died, I could not believe how much everyone did everything wrong and it sucked. Yeah. Like, why did I have to I mean, I had a part of me that was like, I know that they are doing this. 
with such good intent. One of my deepest, I mean, she wouldn't mind me saying this because we've been all the way through it, but one of my oldest friends of all time, you know, she was showing up in a way that just hurt like hell. And I would say out loud, oh my God, this hurts like hell. (coughs) And people would say, oh, but she means so well and she loves you so much. And finally I said, why does that matter? Why does the fact that she means well and loves me so much- for you to hurt more? Right, why does that matter more than the fact that it hurts? Like, what are we doing? But all of that conversation was just so that I could stay in the grief and not be totally minimized. I I get that you wrestled with it. I'm so glad you came out on the other side. I know we're almost on time. Can I read you something that you wrote and then ask you about it? This is towards the end of the book. And I have to tell you, when I got to this, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe she's writing about this right now because I'm really, this is, this is me as like a person being like, okay, Liz, tell me the answer to this. <laughs> I don't this know my answer. You know, I'm writing a memoir. This is where I'm at. Okay. So this is on page 267 and it's in the chapter called four. The unutterable truth was that on days like today, I did feel like it was my fault. It didn't matter that we had taken Fritz to all the ultrasounds, none of which revealed anything. They felt the need to follow up on with higher level machines and more scrutiny. In addition to the midwife, we had taken him to a doctor for a well baby check when he was two days old. The doctor and the nurses alike agreed he was an enormous healthy baby. Still, I was responsible for the things that I had left undone. I wish that after the urgent care visit, I had fought, argued, gone to another doctor, to the ER, called 911, when maybe there was still time, paid more attention as I sang him to sleep that night, done something else, anything else before it was so completely too late, but I didn't. I did so very little. I wasn't a fighter for him. This was the story that wound its way around me, suffocating me, enticing me in and trying to convince me that it was the truth. Oh, damn. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) This, that section is the thing that is the hardest for other people to hear when I talk out loud about what I hold. And I do all this prep work. I say, I know this is going to be really hard. I'm okay with it. This is okay. I still blame myself for my mom dying. And people will be like, oh, but it's not your, I mean, it's really really hard for people who love me and people who just think I'm a decent person Mm -hmm. to let me say that out loud. And it is the truth for me. It is the truth. There's a part of me that understands that there is nothing that I could have done and that whatever her illness was, was, you know, and there are snippets that I carry like little rubies that I can Mm -hmm. pull out of my pocket of moments and memories where I think, oh God, why didn't you just do something different? And I also took her to the hospital. I also, you know, it's not like I did nothing. It's not that I did nothing, but there is no version of the story that will ever be okay, except her staying alive. And I, Mm -hmm. and I will never get to that version of the story. So I am curious about that for you. Has that changed? Does that remain in, in, and literally I'm just asking you as a person because where I am in my own story with it is 
it hurts. It's one of the few things that continues to sort of hurt in the same way. And I think I'm okay if it always hurts. That's the work I've done is mm -hmm. I think I may always feel this way. And that I, that that's what I have to be okay Maybe with. Maybe it's okay. Yeah. And not I eradicating mean, it. So I'm just curious. Yeah. Like, yeah I mean, so I get them. So I, I mean, I ask myself those questions about, about both Fritz and my mom, you know, what, it, what, it, what if I had gotten her into more treatment? What if I had done this? What if I'd moved back home? What if I'd, what, I mean, I, I ask those questions and I ask them, I continue to ask them about Fritz. I think what has shifted for me is that the questions, the longing, the wondering, the, the regret don't suffocate me in yeah. the same way anymore. You carry them too. I, I carry them and I live with them, but I can breathe. Yeah. And I don't know if that, I mean, I don't know that they'll ever go away. I, I think, I mean, what, what is incredibly surprising to me is frankly just shocking is how much has shifted yeah in the years since they each died i mean for the most part I, like i really love my life i have a blast yeah. i laugh a lot you know i recently about a year ago it moved and you know, we're not far from where we were but it's a new community and sometimes people are really surprised like they get to know me and then they learn this part of my story and they're like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> um, because there's really the brooding really, sadness. Where's right. The, like I, yeah. I mostly, I have a, a blast and carry on and laugh a lot and, you know, have prank wars and all that. So I guess in some ways it, it is really surprising to me that all of that is possible. Yeah. In the continuing wake of this grief that is not gone but but does begin to shift and change. I have learned how to carry it and live with it in a way that doesn't break my back. Yeah, and it's still there. I'm still carrying it. Part of what what I was wrestling in around that passage that you read was I you know, and, and I think it crops up especially on you know anniversaries or when I you know some some place or something or the calendar draws me especially close to these stories that what I was longing for was for someone to absolve me yeah. of that. One of, one of the, the, the most incredible things that I do as a priest is that I, I hear confession yeah. and then I tell people, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are free. And I've, I've received that, that, the freedom that comes, the liberation that comes from someone naming that truth for me. Yeah. What I share in there, I think, is that if I were on the other side, I, I would not oh, offer yeah. absolution for this because it wasn't the parents' fault. They didn't do anything wrong. And if I absolve them, then I'm saying, yeah, it was your fault. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. At the same time, I knew that I wouldn't find a good priest anyways. <laughs> who was going to agree? Salt, who would, who would <laughs> offer absolution for that? And I longed for it as a way, a way to put it down. I think, yeah. but in a way that would also be taking on something that, that 
intellectually, I know it was not true. Intellectually, I know. Yes. I was a good mother and a good yes. daughter and I did what I could and I did what anyone else, you know, yes, all of that. And so the absence of absolution for something that I don't think actually was a sin, wasn't a wrongdoing. I guess it's, it's a, a way that it means that I, I do have to keep carrying this and yeah. keep working with it and keep asking the questions and setting the questions down. And I think in some ways there's there's solace that comes in talking to someone else who asks the same questions. Yeah. Who wrestle who understands what it is to wrestle those what ifs that that are impossible and there's no answers to mm -hmm. them and we'll never know. And probably it wouldn't actually have, you know, it would have been a terrible thing in so many ways. For example, if I'd, you know, set everything aside and moved back home and, and babysat my mom to try to keep her from drinking. Right. Like, right. like it would have destroyed both of us. Right. Um, and maybe it's okay for those questions to come. Here's part of what I think is coming to me now, years on, is that part of the role of those what ifs is in guiding the choices that we make now. Yeah. And that it's not that I want to be an obsessive helicopter parent. Right. That's that's not the answer. But but I think the what ifs do inform. They they don't change anything about what yeah. has happened, but they can inform our sense of the beauty and the fleeting reality of life and what we do with it now. I love that answer. I mean, I I just love. Well, first of all, I, I love that, uh, you know, thank you for letting me ask such a like weirdly intimate question. Mm, it's a beautiful one. It's so true though. You it's, know, it's, so, it's, the, it's the sort it of thing true. that, yeah, frankly, most people don't ask me. Your language is more beautiful than that. But I think the question underneath it is essentially, like, do you still blame yourself for your yeah. son's death? Which, yeah, is like a really intimate question, but God, I long for someone to ask me that. Yeah. Honestly, with the space to hear the answer that, that yeah, sometimes I do. Yeah. Sometimes that, I do. And that's, that's part hand. of what I care. Like, can you handle that? Yeah. Like, <laughs> people don't ask the question because I think they can't handle the answer that the yeah. answer might be yes. That's, and the answer that's is it. Sometimes yes. That's and exactly like, what it. What if that's true for all of us? That's Let's exactly it. Questions. You know, my, my goal if we, is. If we're ready for the answer. But that's it. My goal is to always tell as much as of the truth as possible. And I feel mm -hmm. like you wrote down a really hard truth. That is certainly my truth. I think it's another way that maybe my system is trying to protect me from the other hard part of pain because my expectation is I will miss, you know, um, I will miss my mom for the rest of my life every single day. Yeah, and absolutely. again, that, that has to be okay. I also had this experience when my dad died. I spent a lot of time with my dad when he died under the auspice of, well, then I won't regret anything. Yeah. And I mean, one of the very first thoughts I had it just popped into my head, sort of like your vision. That's, I have thoughts was this moment of like, oh my God, well, why didn't I go spend more time with him in this one tiny moment? And it made me laugh out loud. Like, oh my God, I thought I got to circumnavigate feeling regret. You don't get to, you don't get to, it doesn't matter how much you do and serve the hope regret is part of loss. And I think for me, where I come out with this, maybe irrational blame, maybe not, is that 
sometimes I think it's trying to hold my gaze here Mm. because behind me is what I have to do to live without her. Yeah. And that is harder. Mm -hmm. I think that is harder, that it's easier to blame myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, since I was a child, you know, my siblings were blaming me for stuff that had nothing to do with me. It's mm-hmm. easier. And I do think it might be about helplessness. Mm-hmm. And I think the concept that I always want a divine being to hold for me is my sense of human helplessness. Mm-hmm. I don't know that even when I was more religious in an, in an organized way, I could ever really get that held. I think I've always felt it. It doesn't matter how precious something is to you. It doesn't matter how hard you hustle, that there are things that are going to go down the way they're going to go down. And you're just going to be on the receiving end of it. And that is hard as hell. I love you talking about how much you love your life because I'm the same. And I think part of, and, and have been for a really long time. I'm just like happy all the time, but it's hard to navigate profound loss when you know yourself to be happy all the time. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. a different kind of identity loss. It's, well, and it's a different, uh, for me, I, I got, I don't think I am happy all the time, Yeah, but I think that. I mean um, that as like the global. Yeah. 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 How would you describe but, no, I know, I know, it's a total, it's, it feels like a totally different quality of emotion yeah. than what I experienced before these losses. And it is a profound and complicated joy that, you know, that is not just <laughs> balloons and cake and water slides and whatever, but it's, uh, it's this, this deep and tender joy that I mean, like every night I, I check on my living kids when yeah. they are asleep and, and they're still breathing. And I feel like, you know, I will, my, my daughter's a pretty light sleeper. I used to, you know, kiss them both goodnight. Now I just like very gently yeah. lay a hand. <laughs> you want to wake them up. <laughs> Because yeah. I don't want to wake her up, <laughs> and and I feel the rise and fall of her chest, and I you know I feel my son's beating heart, and yeah. and I know that it's all temporary. I know that I've got right now, I've got tonight, I've got, and it's so good, and and it's not that I didn't have just awe, yeah, in the face of her life as a baby or a toddler before I knew this kind of loss, but it changes it. It does. And it changes my sense of time and how I spend my days. Some people I think don't want to go there or it feels too morbid or whatever. But to me at this point, it just feels real yeah, and honest. Just... You know, like one of my, I write some about, about how much I love Ash Wednesday. Yeah. Because I love being all together with a group of people and being really honest that we're going to die. So how are we going to live? This is the time. This is the time we've got. What are we going to do with it? And and so in that, you know, I would never have chosen these deaths and, you know, in this timing, this way, the, the gritty truth of it is that I'm also grateful for how they both have shaped my life and my living in a way that, my life is deeply joyful like that and that all of that can be true that i hate that they are gone yeah and and it's not to say i don't think they died for a reason i don't think it was part of a plan i think all of that is just horse shit yeah drives me crazy and that that new life and goodness and grace can come 
through that and beyond that, like that all of that. So important. And I'm so grateful to you for saying it. And it's, you know, I hate a lot of the phrases that I use. (laughs) I hate a lot of the thing, you know, traumatic growth being one of them, you know, trauma Mm. is the event being traumatized is being overwhelmed. Growth is continuing to live despite those things. And on account of those things, right. When we're traumatized, we're just not able to move forward. Everyone I've ever known who's willing to talk about grief and loss in any sort of articulate way says exactly what you just said, which is, I hate that it happened. If I could go back and change it, I would. And also the truth is it's a part of my life. Probably also it's an important part of my life that has formulated every moment since then, which is this sort of beautiful, transformative, very painful truth that I think is important to say out loud for other people to hear is that the thing that you experienced, which is the loss of a child is the thing that everyone says I could never live through it. And yet you can, you do. Yeah. We have to, that we do. Right. Yeah. That's the, the, that's the reality is that all the time there are things that with our thinking mind, we're like, I could never do it. It would never be possible. And then, and then somehow, here we are. There's a well inside the human experience that we can go draw from and still survive the completely unsurvivable. I know it drives moms crazy when people are like, oh, you're so strong. And you're, it's like, what the, what the fuck uh, choice did I have? Like, I didn't, I'm not, yeah. strong, not an admirable quality. This is a just, I didn't die quality. Yeah. And then maybe we transform it into, and I live with this loss and it's not all the most miserable people. People often say to me, like when they meet me either here or through other work, they're like, wow, you're so cheerful. Like you're so happy. (laughs) And I'm like, I know I am not, you know, I talk about (laughs) grief and loss all the time because it is one of the truths of the world. And I also think of it as a vocation. It's interesting to me. It will, I don't think it'll ever stop being interesting to me. But, but when words like that section are in a book, that feels like grace to me because that feels like the most true of the truth. When my mom died, it was one of the very first thoughts in my head. And I feel like it was trying to help. It was, it was your fault. Tell every, you know, tell everyone. And I was with a dear friend and I was, we were walking down the driveway. It was probably, I don't know, 10 hours after she died. And I said, I have to say something and you have to let me say it. And I said, I think it's my fault. And she said, I'm not going to take that from you. Yeah. But I don't. She said, I'm not going to take it. You can have it. You can believe that for the rest of your life. But I don't. And so it was this duality of both and can you can you tolerate what it feels like for a griever? A griever is going to have this. And so I can you you sit there and say, tell me all about it. Tell me the questions you're asking. Tell me what you wish you'd done differently. Not because you think it's their fault, but yeah, but it is. We join each other there. Yeah, it is one of the questions that I ask people who are grieving. I mean, it's not my first question, but I say, you know, what are the little nuggets that you hold on to that you blame yourself for? And they kind of look at me and I'm like, everybody does it. I know we all do it. You know, we also all know it's not our fault, but tell me anyway. And it'll be these tiny little things. Well, you know, he was stepping out the door and said this, and I could have gotten a coat. And if he got, then he wouldn't have gotten in his car. You know, we just, we have this helplessness that we try to manage with the belief that maybe there could have been something that we could have done to make it a different outcome. 
And that's part of what we suffer with. That is a little piece that comes back for us. And it's relieving and disappointing to hear that even more years out, that's still is the truth. <laughs> but I'm not surprised. It, I'm not it becomes surprised. a, or for me anyways, I think it has become a strange companion. Yeah. You know, I it's a way, that. it's a way in which I'm reminded of how human yeah. I am, that I want to be in control. Well, you know, I think it's the flip side of, of wanting still to cling to the illusion that I can protect my people, I that I can. <laughs> Recently, earlier this spring, we were out for a hike in this beautiful big regional park near our, our house. There are all these big trails up in the hills and there's an old rope swing. And we have been on this rope swing I don't even right. know countless times it's a, it's just this, it's just a swing you know yeah. it's hanging from this huge old oak tree I, I think at some point maybe various points in the book I, I talk about how especially early on, like I've I've reined it in some but early on especially I'd just be like Jesse Jesse's my husband Jesse like be careful he'd be rock climbing or whatever. <laughs> be careful and we were out on the swing and my son went on the swing and it, it's on this really steep hill. So like you can just step onto it. Yeah, go, I get it. You go out away from the hill and you're really high up and then you swing back and hop off. And so my son went on it and then my daughter went on it. And then I went on it. And I'm like laughing and laughing because it's such a thrill. And then my husband goes on it and he goes out and he comes back and then he goes out again and the rope broke and he went just, it just kept going and going and going. And I think he must've fallen 35, 40 feet. Oh my God. And thankfully he was, his feet were facing away from the hill. He landed on his back and I, like it just, it, everything flashed and fresh. Like, and this is the day that my husband is paralyzed yeah. or dead on the side of the hill or, and it was just this total freak thing that that yeah. was, that was the day the rope broke. And, and that feels like to me, the, the counterbalance to all the what ifs. Yeah. To all of my desires you wouldn't have still yeah. to control and protect and helicopter and all and like and what and, and so to be clear, he's completely fine. Right. He like didn't even he wasn't even bruised. It's like what who are you that you fall <laughs> 40 feet and you're not he's like had yeah. some scrapes, he's a little bit sore and walked home totally fine. But it was this after all that you're gonna die on a swing yeah on a swing on a you've got to be kidding me I mean it was terrifying but it was also after the fact this huge reminder of the, like, there, it's life we can what if we can ask all of those blaming questions you know till the cows come home and still then there's a swing yeah, <laughs> you know, that's or right. a slippery spot on the hallway or whatever. And yeah. So how do we live with it? Whether, whether we're comfortable it. with it or not, we're not in control. <laughs> whether we're at a moment right. like that on the swing reminds us yeah. that we're not. And that when that really, that grief is a portion of it, but being able to understand that we will lose, we will always mm -hmm. lose and that we have yeah. to grow our capacity to do that is really kind of the nugget. I'm so grateful for this conversation, for your time you. and for your book and your words. I hope everyone goes out and reads it. It really is just a beautiful, it's raw and beautiful and hopeful. And even for someone like me, not over the top religious, 
not heavy I'm a priest, but I cuss a lot. So, you know, yeah. it averages out, <laughs> there's right? enough swearing in there to edge out. <laughs> all the... Thank you so much. Thank you for doing you're this. Welcome. Liz, thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm Good luck so with everything. And I and hope I'm glad you're doing connected. this work. Yeah, please. Yeah. please. Thank you. Thanks so much. Right. Take, Take care. care. Have okay. a great day. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't had a chance to give us a rating over on Apple Podcasts, run over there and just do it. It takes 10 seconds and it really helps other folks who are looking for podcasts about grief and loss or these sort of deep, soulful conversations. Find us um, and join in our conversations. I'm scheduling right now for the second season. I have about 12 more episodes of this season still to come out, so do not despair. But if you'd like to be a guest or you know someone who'd like to be a guest, please reach out. You can do that on my website, www.griefismysidehustle.com. Thanks so much. We'll listen again together soon.